This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. When the film director Werner Herzog was just 11 years old, this was in the mid-50s, a man with a mobile movie projector came to his one-room school in Bavaria and showed a film, the first film that young Werner had ever seen. He was not terribly impressed. But film became his calling. And now at 81, he's made more than 70 features and documentaries, including early epics like Fitzcarraldo and documentaries like Cave of Forgotten Dreams and Grizzly Man, which never quite leaves my mind. Perfection belonged to the bears. But once in a while, Treadwell came face to face with the harsh reality of wild nature. This did not fit into his sentimentalized view that everything out there was good and the universe in balance and in harmony. And although acting was never his focus, Werner Herzog has become an in-demand character actor in Hollywood, largely because of that unmistakable and menacing voice. He's popped up as a villain in blockbusters like Jack Reacher and the Star Wars TV series The Mandalorian. A few weeks ago in The New Yorker, we published an excerpt from Werner Herzog's new memoir, which is called, and it's a great title, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. It's a title from one of his early films. And we sat down to talk about that book and his unconventional approach to truth-telling. Let's go back to your beginnings, and let's go back to when you were 11 and saw your first film. You grew up quite poor and said that you didn't know about the existence of film before the age of 11, which is quite extraordinary. And you also described that first film which was about Eskimos building an igloo as extremely boring, I think is the phrase you use in the book. Tell me about that experience. Um, you, you began by seeing documentaries, I believe. Yeah, but they, it didn't really fascinate me. It, I immediately could tell as an 11-year-old kid the first time ever knowing that there was such a thing like cinema, and it looked lousy. These people who, who <laughs> built an igloo didn't know how to deal with ice and snow. But I had because I, was, I grew up in the mountains and I grew up on skis. And I wanted to fly on skis. So my dream was to fly. And, and all this uh, looked kind of ridiculous to me and didn't impress me. What did impress you about films? And when did you start to get conceive the idea that maybe I want to do this? It was uh, a bad film, one of the endless series of Dr. Fu Manchu films, one of the sequels. And a stuntman is shot down from a rock 
in somersaults down into the abyss. 20 minutes later, I see the same shot recycled. <laughs> and I told my friends, didn't you notice it was the same guy somersaulting and didn't, doing this little kick in midair? And they said, no, uh, we didn't, number one, they didn't see it. And number two, it's impossible because uh, that guy that you saw was dead already. We assumed who was shot down from a rock was actually really dead. So and I, I started to see cinema in a different way. How did they do it? How do they, what is the composite? What is, how do they narrate a film? How is the one scene or one shot added to the next and makes a story? So from a real bad film, I started to figure out cinema myself. But at the same time, at the same time, I knew I was a poet and I started writing. I wrote poetry and I have always been a writer as well. So it puzzles, it puzzles people and you are speaking only of my films. My films are a distraction right now. How do you mean? Uh, because I'm out here, I published, I wrote th three books in the last two years mm -hmm. and I have proclaimed and uh, postulated for more than four decades, watch out, you have to see something else in me as well. I'm a writer and my writing will probably outlive my films. You, you write, you write, to this day, I couldn't tell you what color my eyes are. Introspection, navel-gazing is not my thing. Is that really true? You don't know color it is your true. eyes is? It is true. I look at my face when I shave mm -hmm. so that I won't cut myself, but I do not want to look into my eyes and study myself and, and reflect myself. Sometimes animals, when you have a cat, we have a cat, and when you put a, a mirror in front of the cat, the cat looks is shy and turns away and, and doesn't want to face itself. So animals sometimes because do this. Because of a sense of horror or disinterest? No, no, neither, neither. I do not know. I think it's only, in a way, unhealthy to look too much at your own persona and your own navel and your own well-being and your own role in, the, in society. All this uh, I keep away from me. And I keep saying it's, uh, it's not healthy to illuminate every single dark corner in our soul, leave it dark, to remember everything uh, and keep it alive and deal with it later in life and work, work away your traumas. Have you, ever your been, have you ever been in psychotherapy? No, I'd rather be dead Why? than in psycho. The same way, like you see, my, my head is baldening. And I give this as an advice to men now. Rather be dead than ever wear a toupee. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> no, it's, I don't need to explain any further. Men will understand me and women will understand it even better. I think so. <laughs> I think so. But psychoanalysis would kill you because it, it's no, it would not kill. No, it would not kill me. But I'd rather be dead than volunteering to go to an analyst. I better work it uh, out with uh, 
talking to a very dear friend who has had a similar experience. Talk to them. Not talk to a, to a professional. Talk to your wife. Talk to uh, somebody who is close to you. Or don't talk at all. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and deal with it. Deal with it. Deal with your own soul and get over with it. It's always struck me, since I was quite young and watching your films and then reading you, that your voice, your style, whether you're speaking to me now or whether I'm reading you or whether I'm watching you in a documentary film behind the camera or in front of it or in your films from, from long ago and even more recently uh, feature films, that there is a distinctiveness to it and that you are in control of it and sometimes it's parodied possibly yeah. because of your accent and you parody it too of course yes like uh, you you know how to play with self, it self irony does me good <laughs> like yeah. for example I, I mentioned to you before we sat down I, I rewatched yeah. uh, this Jack Reacher film with Tom Cruise and you're playing a, a, a horrifying <laughs> criminal named Zik Chilovyek which yes. means in Russian Prisoner person, which is a yes. great joke. I was in prison in Siberia. I spent my first winter wearing a dead man's coat, a hole in one pocket. I chewed these fingers off before the frostbite could turn to gangrene. That is how I survived when so many others did not. A man this rare can always be of use. So show me. Show me how rare. Show me you'll do anything to survive. And you're playing with your own voice. What do you, tell me what you're doing. What are you, what's your it's level a, of self-awareness and then how are you manipulating it? It's not just the voice. It's a content also. And uh, there are other bad guys, but they have assault rifles and they open fire and they uh, start fist fights and they, they yell and curse. I have only a quiet voice and one eye is blind and pretty much all my fingers are gone from frostbite. So that's all I have, my voice, and calm, quiet. And I was cast for this. I didn't compete for it. I was cast for the part because I had to spread terror. I mean, I have to be frightening. And I knew I would be good at it. And, and I am. I was paid handsomely and I did a good I mean, job. Yeah. It's a ridiculous movie, but you are extremely memorable in it. Yes, I am. And I'm proud of it. And it's not completely ridiculous. It's better. The, the story is, is uh, better than most of the action movies that you see. And it's uh, interestingly cast uh, uh, Tom Cruise and some other very interesting actors in it. And um, Tom Cruise, of course, uh, as a protagonist, needs a, a, a strong antagonist. Otherwise, he cannot really show his qualities. He, he, the, the character is a, it's a samurai movie. It's a, it's a, way, it's, it's yes. a loner who comes to town and sets right. things right. Yes, yes. Or a western. And, and, uh, and I'm good at these things. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, or, for example, in Simpsons. Excuse me. My name is Walter Hottenhofer, and I'm in the pharmaceutical business. Yeah, I was wondering when that guy was going to state his name and occupation. Quiet! Tell me your experience of The Simpsons. 
I did not even know that they were speaking and moving, and I doubted uh, what do they speak. And one of the creators of The Simpsons said, they speak since 23 years. <laughs> in which world do you live? I thought there were strips, these comic strips in newspapers. Yeah. So, and, and, and I asked him, please, can you send me uh, a few samples on DVD? They couldn't believe it. They thought I was pulling their legs, but indeed... Uh, I did not know about it, and I didn't know about Star Wars films. Of course, I know about the Star Wars films, but until today, I haven't seen any, and I played a part, so I had to be briefed. Who are the good guys? What is this tribe out in the universe? Who, who is who? What is going on in previous sequels? So I, I had to learn about it. And enough for me to understand my part in it. I had to be a character very, very untrustworthy. Really, you don't want to, to do business with that one. I, you mentioned you've never seen a Star Wars film? No, not until today. Why? Um, I don't know. I'm somebody who reads. You see, I, I read. Uh, there's not a day where I do not read. In other words, cinema, in a sense, is not, is not a special interest of yours. It is. You know, uh, somebody but, like Scorsese sees everything and he has a film no. encyclopedia in his head, not you. No, I'm not an encyclopedist. I see fairly few films per year. Not, not many. Film director and author Werner Herzog will continue in a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking... What is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hi, it's David Remnick. As the 2024 election draws near, it's more important than ever to understand exactly what's happening in American politics. The New Yorker offers definitive reporting and analysis by some of the best writers and political thinkers watching the campaign. Commentators and reporters, including Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, Jelani Cobb, Masha Gessen, Evan Osnos, Ben Wallace-Wells, and many more are providing incisive analysis that you don't want to miss. Subscribers get unlimited access to all of it. And we're offering a deal just for podcast listeners. 15% off a yearly digital subscription. Visit newyorker.com and use the code POD15. That's P-O-D-1-5 for 15% off a digital subscription to The New Yorker.
This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I'm talking today with Werner Herzog, the director, occasional actor, and the author of a new memoir. Herzog grew up in post-war Germany, part of the new wave of German filmmakers in the 60s and 70s. Their films grappled in very different ways with the aftermath of the war, Nazism, and the Holocaust. Herzog's films were often propelled by extreme characters in extreme conditions, some of them driven to madness, and that became a central theme for him. Werner Herzog and I spoke recently about his new memoir, Every Man for Himself and God Against All, and about his unconventional approach to the truth. I know well from watching your films, your documentaries, reading you over the years, that you have an let's just say, an interesting approach to the truth. You have something called, a belief in something called ecstatic truth. What is that? It's very complicated, but um, ecstatic truth, I coined this term, I think I coined it, uh, has to do with a different approach to truth. Number one, nobody knows what truth exactly is. Neither the philosophers are in consensus, nor is the Pope in Rome, uh, nor uh, mathematicians or whoever. So uh, we have to be very cautious. Touch that term only with a pair of pliers, mm-hmm. please. And um, there's a school in filmmaking, the so-called cinema verite. Mm-hmm. It claims truth in its very uh, essence, but it's ba- it's fact-based. It's fact, fact, fact. And I keep saying facts do not illuminate us. The Manhattan phone directory, four million correct entries do not illuminate us. We do not know why is uh, James Miller, and there are probably 200 different James Millers with correct address, and so why is he crying in his pillow every night? We do not know that. And that's my approach that is beyond uh, outside of facts. Um, And it requires... uh, stylizations. It requires uh, um, somehow shaping, creating, creating something like poetry, a sense of poetry that uh, gives us an approach into truth. Truth, we uh, I understand, is something vaguely somewhere at the horizon. It's out there. I, I'm fairly sure. And the um, the the intense quest for it and search for it, uh, the approach to it is is worthwhile. And I'm, that's what I'm doing in films and in literature and in everything I do. Is, uh, is there a difference between what we call feature films, yes. quote-unquote fictional films, and documentary films, other than the fact that um, one uses hired actors and the other doesn't, in your approach to... F- fact and truth. Well, my uh, approach has always been uh, I do not make such a distinction between feature films and documentaries. I don't like the categories. For me, it's all uh, movies anyway. Mm. And But I'm in documentaries. I do casting. I do rehearsing. I do uh, repeat certain scenes or statements. A key statement in a a documentary little Dieter needs to fly the key of the film and and the person who went through an ordeal is the only 
POW, American POW, who escaped Vietnamese in Patitlao captivity. He told me the key story, 42 minutes nonstop. And I said, well, we need it much more abbreviated. And then he forgot this or that detail. And I did it five times until we had a very intense and very beautiful rendering of, of the central story. Uh, and I do that. And you normally do that only in... Uh, Uh, feature films. I interfere, I shape, and I shift with facts. André Gide, the French writer, said, uh, I modify facts to such a degree that they resemble truth more than reality. And it's a very beautiful way to understand it. I guess I I'm trained differently than you are, and I would And I publish a magazine, The New Yorker. And if I found that an author had your approach to truth, I wouldn't reject it. I'd be pleased to publish it, but I might put it under the rubric of fiction rather than, say, in our terms, reporter at large. Would you have objection to that? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. Filmmaker at large. <laughs> <laughs> Or a writer, writer so, at large. And, and you see, when I... Um, publish my memoirs, I say it only in quotes, it's furious storytelling and it's furious style. You see, that's, don't look for event, event, event like in a biography. Or fact, fact, fact. Fact, 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 you, you will be disappointed. It reminded me, and I say this without judgment, just as a matter, it reminded me of one of my favorite music uh, memoirs, is Bob Dylan's Chronicles, Volume One, which I took to be used fact, yeah. but I also know him from long experience to be someone who's not averse to uh, fa fabricating or weaving or elaborating the imaginative and the fictive into, into, the, into the telling of his life story. And that, that, makes him, that makes him a, a great poet, period. This, Blessed be his heart. Indeed. Now, this morning, there was a review published in the New York Times, which I'm guessing you've glanced at. It's by Dwight Garner. It begins this way. I don't believe a word of the filmmaker Werner Herzog's new memoir, which bears the self-deprecating title, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. What is this, a Metallica album? But then I'm not sure we're supposed to take much of it at face value. Like Jim Smiley and Mark Twain's The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County and Bob Dylan and Tom Waits, Herzog is an old-school, concierge-level bluffer and ham. He won't tell you the truth, not quite, unless it falls out of his pocket accidentally, as if it were a cigarette lighter. Okay, the writer is utterly wrong. Let's face it, and that happens. Uh, he's confused, dazed and confused. <laughs> Can't figure out. That's, Les, that's Led Zeppelin, not, yes. not Metallica, but right. okay. Right, and uh, the beauty of it is that uh, factually, uh, and it has been fact-checked from every single side, there's not one single stone unturned in these memoirs. When it comes to factual things, they're all correct. And sometimes I, I give a caveat. Uh, for example, I'm confronting a family that is hostile against me, and they have sworn... They have vowed to kill me if I appeared in their home. And I say, um, my girlfriend, <laughs> had to whose family I went, has four brothers, all huge, strong guys, all Bavarian 
ice hockey players, <laughs> muscular guys. And immediately I add, my memory may deceive me. It may have been only three brothers and not four. Maybe my memory enlarged the danger. So I, I give hints. I immediately doubt my own memory because memory is never completely correct. But whatever you read uh, in my um, memoirs um, goes back to diaries, goes back to things that were witnessed by dozens of people. I did move a ship over a mountain, period. If you doubt it, it's your problem. For the film Fitzcarraldo. For the film Fitzcarraldo. Mm. I did uh, uh, certain things. I, I was um, in on the island of Crete and stumbled into a valley where there were 10,000 windmills. Yes, they existed, and yes, they are documented in my first long feature film. You see them. I'd like you to read... Um, something from the book. I had picked out a passage. Yeah. Uh, it's about the original ending of Aguirre, Wrath of God. All right. Yeah, about the possibilities that I had in, yeah. in life, the alternatives, and uh, how many possibilities were there out, out for me. It's a very, very strange thing. The original ending of my film, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, went like this. The raft with the conquistadors has nothing but corpses on board, and when it reaches the mouth of the Amazon, the only living creature on it is a speaking parrot. As the Atlantic tide pushes back against the mighty river, the parrot is incessantly screeching two words, El Dorado, El Dorado. Then, while filming, I found a much better solution. The raft is overrun by hundreds of little monkeys, and Aguirre raves to them about his new empire. Quite recently, I came upon another unverified account, unverified, I said, of the historical Aguirre. Abandoned by all and having murdered his own daughter so that she isn't witness to his disgrace, he orders his last follower to shoot him. The man sets his musket against Aguirre's body and shoots him in the middle of the chest. That was nothing, says Aguirre, and he tells the man to load again. This time the man shoots him through the heart. That should do, says Aguirre, and he falls down dead. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm sure the version of the monkeys is the perfect ending for the film, but I wonder how many other possibilities, how many roads not taken there were for me, not only in film plots, in stories, but in my life. Roads I never took, or only took years later. Is, that a, is there a sense of regret in that? Are there no, roads that no, you, no, absolutely not. No, that's my life. Uh, whatever you throw at me, I will deal with it. And it comes with vehemence, and the vehemence of things that, that came at me ended up in, uh, in movies or in writings, and now in my memoirs. Werner Herzog, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's a joy. 
Werner Herzog, the director, actor, and writer. You can find an excerpt from his new memoir at newyorker.com. It's about the time he spent as a young man living in Pittsburgh in the attic bedroom of a very eccentric family. I'm David Remnick, and before we go, I want to take a moment to say goodbye to two of our colleagues on the show, Ngofan Mputubwele and Britta Green, who both contributed so much creativity and intelligence to the program during their time here. They brought so many terrific segments to the air, and we'll miss you both. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, and Louis Mitchell. With guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. And a special thanks this week to Alana Casanova-Burgess. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. 